Here we go. All right, we're good. Thank you guys for leading us in worship, Randy, Danny, Clint. Thank you so much. And today we certainly, as I said earlier and prayed earlier, we are commemorating Sanctity of Life Sunday. You received uh, after the offering, you you actually got something back today. Um, you got a little bracelet. Lifehouse Pregnancy Care Center has provided those for us, and uh, as a as a reminder to us about life and uh, how it does indeed matter, and certainly as the video showed, all life matters. And I believe we'll see that this morning as we look in the scripture, and uh, and I and I hope that we do. Let's uh, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us in a fresh new way today. Lord, may today not simply be a a day to join with others in church and to nod in agreement or to let it go in one ear and out the other or to form debates in our minds. But Lord, may today be in all reality a, a day where we hear from your Holy Spirit, from God on high. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that the power of your resurrection would be evident in this service, the power to give new life to us, the power to dig us out from the holes that we've dug for ourselves, and the power of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My dad drives a Ford truck. It's a Ford Ranger. His brother also drives a Ford truck, and so do I. My, my, my papa drove a Chevy. My dad didn't start driving a Ford until papa was dead. And so papa, as my dad says, would roll over in his grave if he knew that my dad was driving a Ford. Some of you have had those debates as well, haven't you? Some of you drive a Ford, and that's all you'll ever drive. And some of you drive a Chevy, and that's all you'll ever drive. And some of you think, Ford and Chevy, what are you talking about? you got something else that you drive. You're a Dodge Ram sort of person. It's interesting how we we trust the brand, don't we? We believe in the brand, whatever that particular brand may be. And we do it all the time. And we have arguments over these things. You know, my brand is better than your brand, and this brand is the one that you should buy. We believe in the value and the quality of something, often just because of the brand that is on it, don't we? You know, let's, let's just be honest. If you're a Ford guy... Ford could come out with 10 years worth of awful trucks and you'd still buy Ford because you just can't believe it. If you're a Chevy guy, Chevy could come out with 10 years worth of awful trucks and you would still buy it just because it's a Chevy. And all the Ford guys just said, oh yeah, Chevy, there have been 10 years worth of awful trucks. And all the Chevy guys said, yeah, those Ford trucks, 10 years. Why do you buy that? So because of the brand. And we do it with all kinds of things, don't we? With vehicles, certainly. With appliances, some of the appliances you have in your home are a loyal brand. You've been buying those things for years. Or machinery or clothing or going to a particular store, whatever it may be. We, we all do this. And we learn when we're kids to, to trust the brand, don't we? Do you remember years ago the brand that you just had to have? You didn't care if it was quality. You didn't care what it looked like. But it was the brand name. Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars. You had to have them, didn't you? They had to have the star on the side. They didn't have the star on the side. They weren't the real deal. The Air Jordans when they first came out in 1985. You had to have those, right? I had a pair. It's interesting that we do that. We value things because of the brand that they have on them. 
And I really believe that, especially here in America, but, but I can imagine that all over the world that those things are true. <clears throat> Whether it's a known brand or just the brand that you have come to trust or just the person that you've come to trust, they make something that is of extremely high quality. And I really believe that's true of all of us. And if it's true, if it is true that we buy something because we trust the brand, because we believe in who is making it, then we are the worst of all hypocrites. We are the worst of all hypocrites as humans because we, we see and we know, especially from Scripture, that humans wear the brand of God Himself. And yet, over 55 million defenseless humans have been legally murdered in the last 40 years in our country. Millions are living in unchecked poverty around the world. Thousands are sold into sex trade every single year. And scores and scores of those who are deemed useless by our society are done so because of their age or their disability. We buy things, we believe in things because of the brand, and yet we see the brand on humans and we discard humans because they're inconvenient, because they're in our way, because they're useless. Our society is interesting to me. It claims to be so evolved, so sophisticated, And yet those whose lives are inconvenient to our own, those whose lives are unproductive to society, those whose lives uh, have values counter to our own, are deemed worthy of violence or destruction or dismissal. It's the people who are pretty and talented and rich and smart and productive. Those are the ones that are viewed as, as having more value than those whose looks and ability and finances and intelligence and contribution to society are less than desirable. What a shame. I really believe that our country's and our world's decreasing view of God is the direct cause for our reduced and our redefined and our biblically inaccurate view of life and our secularized and our subjective view of right and wrong. It's our decreasing view of God. And on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I I want to state, I suppose for the record, once again, what we here at Elm Grove believe and will teach about life. We believe that life matters 100% from conception to the grave and beyond. We believe that life matters. We believe that life is in God's hands, that He is the only rightful giver and taker away of life. We believe that every single human life, every one of them, has been made in the image of God, even the ones we don't like, even the ones that we disagree with, all made in the image of God. And we believe that to devalue, whether the life of the unborn, the poor, the elderly, the disabled, the imprisoned, the sick, or the sinful, to devalue any life is to devalue the creator of life. And I think scripture is very clear as you look at it on the whole, that my view of God dictates my view of life. My view of God dictates and determines my view of life. And so our goal and our vision 
on Sanctity of Life Sunday is to increase our view of God and thereby increase our view of and our compassion toward every single life that God has created. And today is part of that, of course. We believe that we must protect the sanctity of life and promote the quality of life for all. Not just some, but for all. Now let me just take a little time out. I'm not preaching today to everybody who's out there. I'm preaching first to myself and secondarily to all of us who sit here today. And so I hope that we won't simply nod in agreement and say, well, I tell you what, I wish so-and-so could hear this. Oh, yeah, you go get them, preacher. I'm telling you, you know what? Let's be careful today. With myself at the front of the line, let's be careful to make sure that we hear what God is saying to us and not just shouting something to the masses. Because here's the thing. We for years have been trumpeting the same message. And in so many cases, our message has gone unheard. Our message has gone unheeded. And I wonder if some of it is because we have not valued all life, even the ones that we disagree with. Now, there's a biblical reason why we believe what we believe about life, and it is found, at least in part, in Psalm chapter 139. If you got a Bible handy, I'd like for you to turn there. Psalm chapter 139, if you don't have a Bible with you, that uh, shouldn't stop you, hopefully, from getting to the Scripture. You can look it up on your phone or your tablet. Psalm chapter 139, the book of Psalms, it starts with a P, P-S-A-L-M, Psalms 139. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. If you're holding your Bible, kind of put your fingers in the middle, throw it open there. 139 is what you're looking for. Psalm 139 gives us a very comprehensive view of what life is all about and how we should view it. So I'm going to read this entire psalm and then we'll start to to break this down a little bit. It says it is a a Davidic psalm. Tradition has uh, attributed this particular psalm to King David. Now, we don't have any solid evidence necessarily that that is true, but it seems in line with the way that he would teach and talk, and so that's what they are doing here. Regardless, it doesn't change the meaning. Lord, you have searched. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty, and I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the land of the dead, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will become night, even the darkness is not too dark for you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. 
God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Now, we're going to break this part, as I said, and kind of work through it just a little bit. There really there are three themes that I think kind of tie all of this psalm together. And we'll look at all of these. We'll try to give as much detail as possible. There's a, an outline there in your bulletin if you want to pull that out and kind of take some notes. I would encourage you, make some of your own notes as well. Uh, some things that come to mind, some questions you might have, write them down. Something that you want to study some more, maybe something that you have a question about for me after the service. Be happy to talk with you about any of those things. Make a note. You've got front and back there that you can write on. But, uh, but let's look at this. Three main things I, I really believe that tie Psalm 139 together. What Psalm 139 teaches. We're going to give three things and then we'll look at what do we do now as a result of all that. The first theme in Psalm 139 is the continuity of human personhood. The continuity of human personhood. Uh, the, the fundamental questions really that this psalm seeks to address to some degree is when, when does life begin and, and when do I become me? Now think about that. When is it that I became me? I don't remember life in the womb. I don't remember that. I don't remember much about my first three years of life. Maybe you have some stronger memories. I don't. My first memory was when I was about three years old. It's just sort of fuzzy. And then I've got some memories about five. My first baseball memory was making a play back in the hole at shortstop and throwing a guy out at first. I was eight years old. That's my first baseball memory. And it stands out. I got him out. At least I, I remember, remember that I did, you know. But I don't have memories of being in the womb. When was it, though, that I became me? If you look at this psalm, over and over and over, the psalmist talks about this identity of himself and his relationship with the Lord. If you look in verses 1 through 5, it's talking about, here's me now, really, when I stand up, when I sit down, when I think, wherever I am, I'm surrounded and encircled by the Lord. So this is me now. I know that I am me right now. You know that you are you right now. Verses 7 through 12 talk about me somewhere else. Well, what if I go somewhere else? Am I still me? It's apparent that he talks about himself as, yes, if I'm there, then, well, that's me. That's who I am. I am me no matter where I am, whether I'm here, whether I'm somewhere else. And then he talks about, in verses 13 to 16, me back then in the womb. Isn't it interesting that there is no interruption of the continuity of human personhood? Follow me for a second. The psalmist writes about himself as if he is himself now. He would be himself somewhere else, and he was himself way back in the womb. Do you get what I'm saying? He is the same person from conception all the way to Sheol, he says, the land of the dead. There is no interruption in the continuity of who he is. Now that has some tremendous implications. Because if he is who he is in the womb to the grave... Then a person is a person is a person is a person from the womb to the grave. You were who you were in your mother's womb. You will be who you are right now and forever who you are. You are a person from the time of conception until eternity. You are who you are. Now some would argue with this. 
Some would say, well, we're not talking about... You know, just just sort of a personality. You can't express personality until you're out of the womb and so on, right? But it's interesting when you look at the timeline of fetal development, we begin to see is a person a person even in the womb. John Stott, the late Anglican professor, the late Anglican theologian and pastor, he said it this way in a summary of timeline, summary timeline of fetal development. He said this at three to three and a half weeks, the tiny heart begins to beat. At four weeks, though the fetus is only about a quarter of an inch long, the head and body are distinguishable, as are also the rudimentary eyes, ears, and mouth. At six or seven weeks in the womb, brain function can be detected, and at eight weeks, at eight weeks, the time that most abortions begin to be performed, all the child's limbs are apparent, including fingers, fingerprints, and toes. At nine or ten weeks, the baby can use his or her hands to grasp and his mouth to swallow and even can suck his or her thumb. By 13 weeks, the completion of the first trimester, the embryo is completely organized and a miniature baby lies in the mother's womb. The baby can alter position, respond to pain, noise, and light, and even get a fit of hiccups. And some of you mothers have felt that before, haven't you? From then on, the child merely develops in size and strength. By the end of the fifth month and the beginning of the sixth, before the the second trimester is complete, and while the pregnancy is not yet two-thirds complete, the baby has hair, eyelashes, nails, nipples, and can cry, grip, punch, and kick. And mothers, you know about that kicking, right? You've felt that before. The point that he's making here is that we all know that whatever is in the womb, whether we can agree on what it is or not in society, we have to agree, we must agree, or we're insane. We must agree that whatever is in there is living and is human and will mature into adulthood if given the opportunity. We, we, it is illogical to, to think anything else. It makes no sense. It is alive, whatever you might say it is. It is alive. It is human. It is not a dog. It is not a cat. It is human. And if given the opportunity and if healthy, it can and it should mature into adulthood. Correct? Am I, I mean, I'm going to say anything that's crazy here this morning. Again, I'm not preaching out to their, to those people. We have become confused, I think, as Christians based upon the onslaught of our society and the, the, the force with which the waves crash against us to believe something different from what the Bible actually reveals to us. And so let's make sure that we understand that whatever we might call it, a fetus, an embryo, whatever, it is alive, it is human, and it will develop, if given the chance and if healthy, into adulthood. Here we are, right? You were once that fetus, you were once that embryo, you were once that baby in the womb. That's just the way it is. And here you are, and you are always that same person. And we know it's a person in there anyway, don't we? What, what do you tell somebody when they when you find out that they're they're pregnant? Congratulations. Why would we, as a society, this to me is the most hypocritical thing. Why would we, as a society, tell an expectant mother congratulations if all that's in there is a blob of flesh and tissue? Hey, congratulations for what? I'm not you know well, for this growth. Well, for what? Why on earth would we do that? It makes no sense to me. And yes, I'm being facetious, but I think it, it, it demands that we be a little bit facetious and taken aback to say, what on earth are we doing? Why would we throw someone a baby shower if there's nothing in there that cannot be taken away? Why do we mourn at a miscarriage? Why do we mourn 
And why did I go to the funeral of my friend's little six-month embryo that was stillborn? Why did I go years ago? Why? Because we know. We know. Why do we get excited? Why do we mourn? Why do we tell one another congratulations? Why is it that we throw baby showers and all those things? Because we know there's a person there. And it's exciting and it should be. When does life begin? When do I become me? The answer is that life begins at conception and I am me from the womb to the grave and beyond. That is the answer that Psalm chapter 139 gives gives us. And so we need to be sure as believers in Christ, not in a a condemning way, but that we are honest and we call it what it is. And we call society back to some kind of sanity on what it is if, if we intentionally... If we intentionally end life, which is alive and which is human and which will develop if given the opportunity and if healthy into adulthood, if we intentionally end that life, it is killing intentionally a human life. That is simply the way that it is. And furthermore, honestly, as Christians, I don't believe that we can claim faith in Jesus Christ and then claim that life begins at any other time but at conception. Because what do we know about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? That he was what? Conceived, what? Of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, and was raised again. What do we talk about Jesus? From conception, what? To the grave and beyond, he was who he is. He is our Savior from conception to the grave and beyond. If we're going to claim faith in Jesus Christ, and Christians, hear me on this... If you're confused over when life begins, if you claim faith in Jesus Christ, we'd better be believing that life begins at conception because that's what we claim about Jesus. And so a person is a person from conception to the grave and beyond. It's the continuity of human personhood. There was never a time when you weren't you. Secondly, Psalm chapter 139 gives us and reveals for us the source of human dignity. Uh, verse 1 says, you have searched me and known me. He's talking about God here. Verse 5 says, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Verse 14 says it this way, I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Verse 16 says, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how difficult, verse 17, are your thoughts for me to comprehend how vast Their sum is. Where is it that we receive our dignity, our value? I've come to understand and believe that as the older I get, I think this is huge, that I, I don't have dignity, I don't have value because I am productive. Because I do something, because I have functionality, because I have all of my my functions, if you will. I don't I don't have dignity, I don't have value because I have loved people or I can love people. I have value and I have dignity and you have value and you have dignity, and every single person that has ever been created has value and has dignity because God loves me, because God knows me, He created me, and He sustains me. Do you see what the psalmist says? He says, you, Lord, you, you, you. And in a sense, he's saying, you have given me all these things. You have made me who I am. There is dignity in simply being human. And being human is amazing. Have you ever done any study of the human body? 
You ever take an anatomy class? Did you ever read a little bit about the intricacies and so on of the human body and all of its different systems and functions? Uh, the provost at the Baptist Temple College in Cincinnati, Dr. Joseph Paturi, he puts it this way, without a doubt, the most complex information processing system in existence is the human body. If we take all human in, uh, information processes together, that is the conscious ones, language, information, controlling, deliberate voluntary movements, so on, and the unconscious ones, uh, the, the organs, the hormone systems, and whatever, things we don't have to think about, it involves the processing of a total amount of bits daily of 10 to the 24th power. Some of you are real smart and you know exactly what that means. I just know that's really big and really impressive. Math was not my thing, but that's a big, big number. 10 to the 24th power. Do the math. This astronomically high figure is higher by a factor, it is, it, that is, it is one million times greater than the total human knowledge of 10 to 18th power bits stored in all the world's library. Do you get what I'm saying? It's huge and we are really impressive. We can do things just normally that we don't even have to think about. We can do things intentionally that we do think about. Nothing in the world created by man can replicate. Nothing. It is beyond comprehension the way that our bodies work naturally and by intention. I I found a website that talked about the function of the human eye. It's called apologeticspress.org. And here's what they said. Even Charles Darwin struggled with the problem of how to explain such a complex organ as the eye could have, quote, evolved through naturalistic processes. In The Origin of Species, he wrote this. To suppose that the eye, with all its intimidable contrivances for adjusting to focus, to, adjusting the focus, rather, to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration... Could have, could have been formed by natural selection, this is what Darwin says, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. And the website goes on, it says, but even though Darwin acknowledged that the eye could not have evolved, he went on to argue that it in fact had been produced by natural selection through an evolutionary process. It seems almost as though Darwin could not make up his mind on the matter. But he's not the only one who struggled to explain from a naturalistic viewpoint the intricacy of the eye. Evolutionist Robert Jastrow once wrote, The eye is a marvelous instrument, resembling a telescope of the highest quality with a lens, an adjustable focus, a variable uh, variable diaphragm for controlling the amount of light, and and optical corrections for spherical and chromatic aberration. The eye appears, this is what this evolution has said, the eye appears to have been designed. No designer of telescopes could have done better. How could this marvelous instrument have evolved by chance through a succession of random events? How indeed, the the article goes on to say. Though Dr. Jastrow argued that, quote, the fact of evolution is not in doubt, end quote, he confessed that, quote, there seems to be no direct proof that evolution can work these miracles. It is hard to accept the evolution of the eye as a product of chance, end quote. Another... Commentators summed it up this way. The eye is a truly amazing phenomenon. Although accounting for just one four thousandth of the adult's weight, it is the medium which processes some 80% of the information received by its owner from the outside world. The tiny retina contains about 130 million rod-shaped cells which detect light intensity and transmit impulses to the visual cortex of the brain by means of some one million nerve fibers. While nearly 6 million cone-shaped cells do the same job, but respond differently and specifically to color variation. 
The eye can handle 500,000 messages simultaneously and are kept clear by ducts producing the right amount of fluid, which keeps the eyelids both clean simultaneously, uh, keep both eyes clean simultaneously in one five thousandth of a second. And that makes sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't. I, I cannot comprehend. I'm looking at all of you and all that stuff's going on in my eyes and my brain right now. I'm adjusting to every different thing you wear. My eyes land on the red. It looks beautiful. And I kind of shudder at the blue. See, most of you by now, you don't even wear the blue anymore. I like that. But listen, it's all happening. I I can't can't even explain any of that stuff. Can you? And that's just happening in something that weighs so little and takes up really so little space in my body. But it's my eyes. I say all that and I give you all that stuff not to bore you but to to really overwhelm us with what God has bestowed on us. He created my eyes before I even knew that I existed. Dignity. Human value. This intricate design is bestowed on us. It is not earned. Just because I'm a pastor, just because I've got an advanced degree, just because I have a great wife and four wonderful children, that doesn't mean that I've earned anything with the Lord. My human dignity is not increased because of those things. and My human dignity would not be decreased if I were the worst person on earth. I have dignity simply because God has bestowed it upon me, giving to me what I could not get for myself. At the moment of conception, it is God who gives me human dignity. It is not something that I can produce. It is not something I receive when I am productive, when I can love, or when I can speak, or when I can give anything in return. In fact... The psalmist talks about that he had all of these things when he was where? In the womb. Guess what we can't do in the womb? We can't respond verbally in the womb, right? We can't respond with a handshake. We can't respond with a nod. We can't respond in any particular way that we see as a response while we're in the womb. And yet it is God who poured out his love and his grace on that fetus that was unresponsive. And that is the ultimate grace. God pouring out his love and his mercy and his grace on the unresponsive. Why do I matter? Because I am a wonderful creation of God who loved me when I was unable to respond to him or to anyone else. The third theme of Psalm 139 is the limit of human autonomy. The limit of human autonomy. Autonomy being independence. I do what I want to do. I answer to no one but myself. We see here in this psalm in verses 1 through 4 and verse 6 that only God is omniscient. That only God knows everything. In fact, the psalmist goes on and on about how much God knows about him. We also see in verse 5 and then 7 through 12... That only God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Where can I go, he says, to escape your spirit? Where can I go? Can I go here? Can I go there? Can I move as fast as the speed of light, he says? Can I run like the the, the dawning of the day? Even there you are, he says, Lord. And then in verses 13 and 14, we we get the idea that only God is omnipotent and all-powerful, able to create life from nothing. 
We have some great creators in our world, some great inventors, some great thinkers, and yet none of them, not a single one, can create something out of nothing. Not a single one can speak something into existence. Not a single one can go out into this field over here by the church and scoop up some mud and some dust and form a human being out of it and breathe life into his nostrils. Not a single one can do that. Only God is omnipotent, and therefore only God has divine prerogatives. Only God has divine prerogatives. According to all the teaching about life and death in the Bible, it is God and God alone who is the rightful giver and taker away of life. The the words of John Stott, I think, really get to the bottom of this. I referenced him earlier. He says this in his book called What uh, Issues Christians Face Today, his chapter on abortion and euthanasia. He says, In this whole discussion, we have to be on our guard against selfish rationalizations. I fear that the real reason that we say serious disability would be an unbearable burden for a child if it were allowed to be born is that it would be an unbearable burden for us. But Christians must remember that the God of the Bible has expressed his special protective care for the vulnerable and the weak. Just read Proverbs over and over. Human freedom, he says, is not unlimited. We find our freedom only in living according to our God-given nature, not in rebelling against it. The The notion of total human autonomy is a myth, he says. God is the rightful giver and taker of life. And as we see toward the end of this chapter, he's even the only rightful giver and taker away of the lives of the enemies. Uh, This is a confusing part of the the chapter. Did Did you catch that when I was reading it earlier? David's talking about all the wonderful things of God. And then he says, God, if you would only kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? Detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. Consider them my enemies. What in the world does that mean? Where is he coming from? It's like left field right there, isn't it? He's all peaceful and God loves me and he's given me value and he made me. God, would you kill those people? I'm telling you. You pray like that too, don't you, right? God, you're so wonderful. and you know, But you know this person. Would you, I mean, you don't have to kill them, but would you like break their legs or something, you know? God, seriously. You just drain their bank account. It would be okay if you did that, you know? I mean, we, we, we pray those kind of things, right? We, we pray against our enemies and so on. David wants to destroy God. He wants God to destroy those people right now. He's, he's really, ultimately, what he's confessing here is his loyalty to God. He said, God, I'm on your side. God, I want what you want. Lord, I, you know, the people that are against you, God, I tell you what, I, you know, I don't want to be on their side. Lord, I am on your side. And there's no particular reason given, but God doesn't respond. There's no resolution to this particular prayer as as the the theological term calls it an imprecatory prayer, calling down curses on your enemy. There's no solution. We can only speculate, but in the context of this particular psalm, given the value placed on life, we can maybe speculate to some certainty, or at least get close, that, that maybe God doesn't destroy them to simply show this psalmist the limit of human autonomy. That I am not the one to take revenge on my enemies. I am not the one to destroy them and run them down. I am not the one to go and get them. 
that only God has that prerogative. Even toward his enemies, God is the one who gives and takes away life on his terms when he cares to. And if God wants to give them patience and grace and time to respond to him, then let me pray to be used as a tool in God's hands to reach my enemies. The taking of divine prerogative of giving and taking away human life is a very slippery slope. Because if we are disrespecting inconvenient and unproductive and even enemy life, if we disrespect those things in our own personal lives, then why not also take those lives at times other than the womb? Stott said it this way, Once we accept that a disabled child may be destroyed before birth, Why should we not be able to do it also after birth? The solemn fact is that if society is prepared to kill an unborn child on the sole ground that it will be disabled or inconvenient, then there is no logical reasons why we should not go on to kill the newborn with congenital malformation, the comatose victim of a car crash, the mentally impaired, and the senile. The disabled become disposable when their lives are judged worthless or unproductive, and he says we are back to Hitler's horrible Third Reich. And I say amen. God cares for the vulnerable and the defenseless and the weak, and we forget or we ignore to our extreme peril. Our quest for autonomy really isn't doing us much good in the first place. Look at our world today. Look at our country today. Look at our individual lives today. How is that quest for personal and human autonomy really going? Really. Now what, I suppose, would be the question. So what do we do? This stuff's heavy, man. This is heavy. I wasn't ready for this. It's kind of warm in here. It's getting hotter, you're stepping on some toes, you're getting fired up, your ears are red, all that stuff, you know, I'm probably sweating, you can see that, you know. What? Okay, slow it down, calm down a little bit. What do we do? Three things I want to give you. Number one is to repent of our sin. He says in verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. I don't know what your view of life has been from conception to the grave and beyond. I don't don't know. I catch myself every once in a while in a hypocritical moment because I firmly believe that life begins at conception and I am firmly uh, entrenched against the idea of killing innocent and defenseless babies in the womb. And I am absolutely 100% for caring for all of our elderly people But there are times when somebody ticks me off and I joke about what I'd like to do to them. And I joke about people that get on my nerves and they annoy me and they do things that that make me feel not so safe in the world and so on. And I talk about what I wish that would happen to all of those people. And in those hypocritical moments, I have to repent of my sin because in those hypocritical moments, I am trying my best to take divine prerogative that does not belong to me. 
Maybe there's a sin this morning to repent of, the sin of not valuing human life. And let me tell you this, that repenting of sin this morning does not come with it heaped on condemnation and shame. It comes with it the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I look around this room this morning, I don't know all of your stories, but and, and I don't understand everything that you've dealt with, but I, I do want to address one particular group that might be represented here this morning. You showed up to church this morning on Sanctity of Life Sunday not knowing it. And, and you may be the lady who years ago decided to end a pregnancy. And you realize now, or maybe you've realized all along, that that wasn't God's will. And that God gave you that life and you decided to take it away. Let me tell you this. The Bible tells us that if we will repent and we will confess our sin, that God every single time is faithful and He is just and He is loving and He is compassionate and He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even those things that you can't quite forgive yourself for. This is not a place of condemnation this morning. A place of truth, yes, but not a place of condemnation. And so if that is you, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not even going to ask you to talk to me after the service. All I'm going to do in just a few moments when we bow our heads and we pray, I'm going to ask you, if you would, just spend time with God and let His forgiveness and let His grace wash over you and make you clean once again. Repent of our sin, whatever it may be. Secondly, we need to raise our view of God. I told you from the outset, I really do believe that it is our decreased view of God that has decreased our view of life. And that my view of God dictates my view of life. He says it in verse 6. He says, this is extraordinary. This knowledge is extraordinary and is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. He's got a high view of God. He praises God. You are beyond me. Raise our view of God so that we will then in turn raise our view of life. When we have a high view of God, when we trust Him, when we know Him, when we see Him as the Creator and the Taker away of life, then our view of life increases. And then thirdly, I'm going to give you a couple points of application after this one. Let's remedy all that we can. Let's remedy all that we can. And here's what I mean by that. Let's do all that we can to protect the unborn. To protect the unborn. To provide for the poor. To seek those who are lost and need Jesus and need His gospel of grace. That He lived for them. That He died for them. That He was raised again for them. Let's seek the lost. Let's honor the elderly. Let's assist the disabled. Let's care for the sick. Let's visit the imprisoned. And let's love our enemies. That's how we remedy all these things. Protect the unborn, provide for the poor, seek the lost, honor the the elderly, assist the disabled, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned, and love our enemies. All life matters to God, every single one of them. Let's raise our view of God and thereby raise our view of human life. Let's pray together. Maybe God has spoken to you this morning. Maybe there's something that He's just confirmed in your heart. Maybe there's something He's revealed in your heart. Maybe there's a, a particular response, a prayer that you need to pray, a, a commitment that needs to be made. I, I'm not sure what it would be for you this morning. But I want you to know that Jesus loves you. That God sent Him, His one and only Son, 
because of his love for the world that whosoever will believe in him will will not as the bible says will not perish will not die but will have everlasting eternal life and maybe just maybe this morning the prayer that you need to pray is one for the very first time of faith in jesus of commitment to him of believing that he is the son of god that that he died for your sins that he was raised again to give you eternal life and you'd begin to see your life as one in need of being made new. Or maybe there's something else. I wonder how it is that God has spoken to your heart. Would you take the time to respond to Him? I'll be down front. be happy to pray for you, pray with you. would love to talk with you. But you spend time with the Lord as we pray in a moment, as we stand to sing. Let God speak to your heart. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for creating us. We thank You for loving us. We thank you, Lord, for putting limits on our human authority.